Uh, our next talk today is from Jack Weschler. Um, Jack joins us from the South Coast. Is that the best way to put it, Jack, uh, yeah. of New South Wales? Um, Jack is going to be talking to us about neuroscience and how it um, can and does influence our work. Jax, over to you. Thanks. Thanks a lot. Um, just before I begin, I would like to acknowledge the Yuan people, the traditional custodians of the lands where I am located today, and I'd like to acknowledge their elders, past, present and emerging leaders. And I would also like to acknowledge the elders of the lands where you are located today and pay my respects to their elders, past and present, as well as their emerging leaders. So hello everybody, I'm very excited to be here with you today and thank you to the other speakers for their talks. I look forward to the rest of the programming. Um, I'm here today and I'm to talk to you about neuroscience and design research. So I've become interested in neuroscience lately. Um, in recent years, I've become very informed in trauma-informed trauma design research and that's actually led me to explore, explore neuroscience. I actually am starting, starting to be a coach because I really feel that the inner work is an important part of change. I'm really interested in change and I believe that my practice as a designer and a design researcher at its core has to do with change. So the sweet spot for my practice sits in this intersection between learning, sharing and doing. So I'm quite a learning nerd. I'm constantly learning learning new things, sharing it um, at conferences and classes and other things, and then I, I apply it through my doing and through my practice. So I'm really interested in helping people to do the inner work because I think it's really important to help us see differently and therefore act differently in the world. And it also helps us to work better together. And in these times, that's what we really need. We, we need to learn to collectively act differently and see differently so we can act better together. Um, I consult independently at Sticky Design Studio and I do some contracting as part of that. And I also spearhead a community of practice called Social Design Sydney where we run, we do events and trainings re, um, related to social design, design for social outcomes and systems change. So that's just a little bit about me. Um, the, the thing about inner work, it is important and I'm not alone in saying this. So I don't know if you've heard of the IDGs or the inner development goals. They came across my radar recently and I encourage you to, to have a little look at them. Um, what they are are some inner development goals that are being worked on by a group of people to help accelerate the work towards the sustainable development goals. So it might be something that may be of interest to you. So what are we going to cover today? I am warning you, there is going to be a bit of technical stuff that we do cover, but I try and um, summarise it and, and, and say it in a few different ways so that it can hopefully kind of sink in a little bit. Um, we'll talk about the neuro, neuroscience, body and mind. We'll talk about polyvagal theory, cognition and behaviour. We'll talk about co-regulation and embodied self-awareness, strengths, visioning and change, reflective platforms, practice and learning, and creative cognition. So today we're going to talk about theory. We're also going to be talking about how we show up in the world or our being. The way we show up informs our doing or how we act. So we will talk about how these dimensions relate to our practices, designers and design researchers. 
And I'm also, I'm hoping to plant some seeds here today, not only for your practice in the design field, but also for your life. I do want to state that I haven't quite worked out all of these dimensions. The first, um, the first part of the talk, we'll be talking about um, more around the being and doing. And the second part of the talk, I'll be talking about neuroscience that exists, that supports practices that we do already. Now, what that has done, learning the neuroscience behind things like novelty and humour and the way that we learn has helped me refine my practice, but it's also strengthened um, my understanding and, and va va validating what we already do. So I'll talk a little bit about that as well. I also want to acknowledge the following people. So as I mentioned, I'm studying to be a coach. And as part of that, I did a module in neuroscience and change. And the work of this talk, a lot of the concepts in this talk are based on the work of the following people. So that's Stephen Porges and Deb Dana. They talk about polyvagal theory. Amanda Blake, Alan Fogel, Anne Betts, and Richard Boyartzis, and the people at the Coaches Rising organization, which is where I've been doing some modules. Very interesting stuff if you're interested. All right, so let's talk about neuroscience. What does that mean? So the definition is any or all of the sciences which deal with the structure or function of the nervous system and the brain. It's a young science and it's evolving very quickly. But I just need to say science is just one of many ways of knowing. So it's about the nervous system. Neuroscience has to do with the nervous system. What What's the nervous system? Well, it's a network of nerve cells and fibres which transmit nerve impulses between parts of the body. So we all have a nervous system and that's the foundation of our thoughts, feelings, beliefs and behaviours. Descartes spoke of the separation between mind and body. He said, cogito ergo sum, I think, therefore I am. What we had done is we located intelligence in the head and the brain. The mind was privileged as a place of thought, intelligence and cognition for a very long time, but it's actually not true. In fact, neuroscience tells us that the brain extends throughout the body. So you can see the diagram on the right. It shows how there's different, uh, the nervous system extends to all the extremities of our body. The brain and body are inseparably interwoven. The brain influences and is also influenced by the farthest edges of the body via the central and the autonomic nervous systems. Neurotransmitters and neuropeptides have now been found in the immune system, the heart, the gut and connective tissue not just within the brain. So there is a direct neurochemical link between the brain and the rest of the body. So what does this mean? What this means is that intelligence and consciousness is in fact distributed throughout the body. So I'm next gonna talk about polyvagal theory. Um, this was a concept introduced by Stephen Porges in 1994. And just a little warning, we're gonna get a bit technical here. This quote is from Deb Dana, who works a lot with polyvagal theory. The nervous system is at the heart of our lived experience. So here we have a diagram of, of the vagus nerve and the nervous system. 
The vagus nerve is a long and complex nerve which carries information from all the major organs, including the heart and the gut, to the brain. About 90% of its traffic flows upwards, giving the brain a sense of what the body senses. It links the brainstem and the heart, and it controls voice, inner ear, and the small muscles of the face. So it links the facial muscles, um, establishing a brain-heart-face connection. So the brain uses this information to try to make sense of not only what's going on physiologically, but also what's going on emotionally. So the translation happens in the autonomic nervous system. So it's a control system that unconsciously regulates bodily functions such as the heart rate, digestion, respiratory rate, urination, and sexual arousal. So the nervous system is always listening inside our bodies as well as outside of our bodies through our senses, taking cues from what's going on and listening for signs of danger or threat. The autonomic nervous system is the primary mechanism in control of the fight, flight, freeze response, and we'll unpack that in a bit. So Stephen Porges came up with the word neuroception when he was developing polyvagal theory because there was no word that spoke to the way the nervous system um, listens or takes in information. Our nervous systems takes in data from our inner worlds through our physical sensations, from the outer world through our senses, and from our interactions with others. This sensing capacity is kind of like an internal surveillance system. It is through neuroception that our nervous systems recognises danger and keeps us safe. Nervous systems communicate without language. It's a bodied experience, body to body. So let's have a little look at polyvagal theory now. An organising principle of polyvagal theory is hierarchy. The autonomic nervous system is composed of two branches. The sympathetic nervous system, um, which is more up, it's more aroused, it's more doing, it's more focused. And the parasympathetic nervous system, which is more of the relief and rest side. In the sympathetic nervous, when the sympathetic nervous system is activated, aroused, we drop into what is commonly known as fight or flight. The sympathetic nervous system is a system of mobilization. It seeks protection through action. When the parasympathetic nervous system is activated, Depending on our tendencies and how our nervous systems reads the information, we drop into either dorsal vagus, which is our system of um, immobilization, commonly known as the freeze response, or we drop into ventral vagal, which is our system of safety and connection. So there is a hierarchy of responses of our, from our autonomic nervous systems. On the right, the states, the right, sorry, on the right, um, we have ventral vagal. So that's at the top and that's a system of safety and connection. And this is the, the state that allows us to connect. It allows us to be together, to live together, to laugh together. Um, it brings health, it brings growth, and it brings, it's a feeling of protection and safety. Um, so we move down one step. The next 
older part of our nervous system is a sympathetic nervous system. And we, we call that a system of mobilization. And this is where fight and flight live. The protection here is through some sort of action taking. The bottom of the hierarchy, the oldest part of our nervous system, is the dorsal vagus. This other branch of parasympathetic, it's a system of immobilization. The protection that happens here is through some sort of shutdown, collapse, disappearing in some way. We are all travelers on the autonomic highway and continuously move between these different levels. We can know where we are through self-embodied awareness and tuning into our bodies. And we can attend to our autonomic nervous systems. And with practice, we can learn to self-regulate and move ourselves into ventral vagal and into connection so that we can connect better with others and ourselves and the world in the moment. In the moment. So let's now talk about um, dysregulation. I, I will use this term a lot. Here I'm referring to a nervous system that is activated and not in a state of homeostasis. Dysregulation affects our bodies and our thinking and noticing dysregulated states in yourself and in others can respond you to, um, can urge you to respond appropriately to the situation. So here are some of the signs. So a signs of hyperarousal when the sympathetic nervous system is activated is red, sweating, flushed, jittery, can't sit still, rapid shallow breathing, rapid movements, rapid speech. And when we're in dorsal vagal, we're in, we're in a hypoarousal state and we may seem dull, glassy eyed, lethargic, stillness without vibrance, frozen, paralyzed, holding the breath, halting, disorganized, or slow speech. Let's just take a moment here for a moment. I'd like you to just sense into, into yourself. Do you sometimes recognize these signs in yourself or in others? Feel into what dysregulation feels like for you. So from moment to moment, your nervous system is translating information, putting you in a state of regulation or dysregulation. Attitudes, actions, and the way you see the world are the result of the autonomic nervous system mo moving between different states. Regulated states is when we feel safe, we feel connected, and when our body feels calm and we are in a state of connection. These are, the, these are times that we really want to connect with others in the world. In Dysregulated states, being fight, flight, or freeze, these are states of protection. So if we perceive a threat, we move into protect, not connect mode. If we do not sense threat, we move into connect mode. We can only be in one state at any given time, and this can change quickly, and it can be changed by others. People who have experienced trauma can find it hard to be in a state of connection. Sensing danger a lot of the time Seeing stimulus for protection, not connection. So let's now have a little look at how these different states affect our brains, our thinking, and our behaviours. When in a dysregulated state, our body prepares for fight, flight, or freeze. The very act of preparing for fight or flight uses up oxygen and glucose, which are needed for creative insight, for analytical thinking, for problem solving and for short-term memory. Our brain gets flooded with noradrenaline, which helps us focus, but a constant flow of this also tires us out quickly. 
Our body is flooded with cortisol, which while helpful in a short-term survival situation, has many negative side effects over the long term. It suppresses the immune system, increases both um, blood pressure and blood sugar levels, and decreases our learning ability. Here is a diagram of the brain and shows the area, uh, the prefrontal cortex. So what's the prefrontal cortex do? It's responsible for our higher level thinking. It influences attention, creativity, impulse inhibition, memory, cognitive flexibility, and the ability to make risk-benefit analysis. So when we're not feeling safe, the prefrontal cortex, it gets partially or fully shut down because energy is needed to be allocated towards fight or flight. So when in that state, we can't be open and curious. Our nervous system is signaling threats and we're contracted. We can't be creative. We won't challenge the status quo. We won't take on new challenges, innovate or take risks. We won't ask questions, speak up in meetings or make tough decisions. In other words, we won't show up as our authentic selves and fully tap into our potential. Safety is important. And there is a lot of discussion about the importance of um, psychological safety in the workplace. And this is some of the neuroscience behind that. So why is this important? Perceiving threat leads to our nervous system getting dysregulated. We show physical signs, which you can notice in yourself and in others. People who have experienced trauma may perceive threat often and easily fall into dysregulated states impacting their ability to think and be creative. When we perceive threat and are in dysregulated states, our cognitive capacity, creativity and ability to work and be together is neg negatively impacted. Feeling safe is important for how we relate as well as how we think. So our nervous systems are constantly taking in information from our internal states from our environments and also from the nervous systems of others. What if your neurophysiology could support safety and connection in others? For me, this idea has been a game changer, not only for my work as a designer, but also for my life. I'd like to now talk about co-regulation and embodied self-awareness. Micro moment to micro moment, below the level of our conscious awareness, we are continuously broadcasting to the world our nervous system state all the time and other nervous systems are picking it up. We are then receiving from the biology of the people around us these messages, again below the level of awareness. We are, at our core, relational beings. As discussed, our nervous systems assess for safety and danger. Our nervous systems are linked as we send cues of safety or danger to each other via our nervous systems. We have longing to reach out and be in safe connection with others. If you and I were having tea while having this conversation, even though we may not know each other, if we liked each other and we trusted each other, our heart rates will synchronize. Sorry, our heart rates might synchronize. Our breathing might synchronize. Our actions might synchronize. This is called co-regulation. Co-regulation is an important process for humans. As babies, 
is we rely on co-regulation with our caregivers to keep us in a regulated state. Throughout our lives, our nervous systems co-regulate as we unconsciously influence people around us with our emotions. The real crisis happens when we infect people with our stress. It's not the words you're saying. Others pick up on the feelings. Building the capacity to tune into your own inner state can improve your capacity for connection. Capacity which can help you in your practice and in all of your relationships. When you are curious about, is, about what is happening in your body, your vagus system gets activated. So remember, this is the system of safety and connection. Sensing into our bodies brings us into a place of connection and deeper presence with ourselves and with each other. So one's capacity to experience one's inner sensations is a tool for self-regulation, i.e. regulating your nervous system, which can lead to better decisions and better interactions with others. So our own embodied self-awareness really deeply affects our capacity to be present and to show up for others, including our colleagues, our clients, as well as our research participants. Embodied self-awareness and the ability to be aware of and adapt our nervous systems allows us to respond to life creatively and responsibly. This is a journey. Let's pause here for a moment. I'd like us to close our eyes. I'd like us to take three deep breaths into our bellies. I want you to feel for a moment for any sensations you may feel in your body. It may be a tickle in your nose when you breathe, the feeling of your clothing on your skin, your feet on the floor, or maybe your belly is rumbling for lunch. Sensing into our inner sensations is one way we can develop our own embodied self-awareness and become more present. This curiosity about what's happening in our body also helps shift us into the vagus state, the system of safety and connection. So let's just pause here for a moment and take three big deep breaths. So being curious about what we're sensing in our bodies is really good for us and also for those around us. All right. So when someone is triggered or activated in their body, the first thing we do is manage our own embodied response. If you're super activated yourself, the other person will pick up on that. They will feel your dysregulation. They will sense threat and probably remain in dysregulation. Remember, bodies can synchronize when nervous systems co-regulate. So should you be in this situation, try slowing your breathing down. Try speaking slowly and try speaking in a gentle, calm voice. This helps you regulate your own nervous system and can help others regulate their nervous systems too. Another way to support someone who is in dysregulation is to encourage them to develop embodied self-awareness. Getting them to be curious about their physical sensations can support them to be present in the moment and to activate their vagus system. We can't be curious and shut down at the same time. So if someone you are interacting with is dysregulated, here are some things you can do. Invite them to feel their in and out breath. 
Invite them to name some objects in the room. Invite them to wiggle and feel their toes. Invite them to name three things they are hearing. Hear they're being curious and tuning into their bodies, which helps bring them into the vagal system. The important thing here is you can help regulate the bodies of those around you. When we are in a regulated state, it can be felt by others. So we can help others regulate by being in a regulated state ourselves. And the great thing is we can learn to change our state. <clears throat> Developing embodied self-awareness can take time. Many of us spend a lot of time thinking and in our heads and not in our bodies. This book, Polyvagal Exercises for Safety and Connection by Deb Dana, is a really good book for helping you learn to identify the different states of your nervous system. We can shift our internal states and, and we have, as we have seen, the internal states of others. Knowing where our own autonomic nervous systems are helps this process, helping you to act from a place of response, not reaction, helping you to build in a little pause before you speak and act. Developing your embodied self-awareness can help you be a better colleague, practitioner, family member, friend, and a better human. So let's summarise here. A regulated nervous system enables creativity and higher level thinking. Being in a regulated state can influence others to be in a regulated state too. Don't freak out if someone else is in a dysregulated state. Bring yourself into regulation. In work and in play, it's good to become familiar with your own autonomic state and find ways to bring yourself back into regulation by taking deep breaths, filling into the sensations in your body. So as I've said, what I've shared here has been a real game changer and I haven't quite unpacked what all the implications are for my practice and maybe it's something that you may be curious about too when you, when you do your work. Okay, so we're going to shift gears a little bit in the next section. Um, here I'll be talking about how neuroscience actually backs up a lot of the things that we already do. So in this first section, we're going to be talking about strength, visioning and change. As design researchers, we work with change and I feel we play an important role in creating space for change and enabling organisational and individual appetite for and openness to change. According to Richard Boyatzis, an expert in leadership development and emotional intelligence, you have three points at which you can activate a person's openness to change. One is to work on their vision. Getting to intentional change requires the creation and realisation of a personal or shared vision. The other is to build a resonant relationship with them. The third is to focus on strengths. We will expand on this in a bit. But let's first talk about the neuroscience behind this. There are two psychophysiological states that are important for change, the positive emotional attractor and negative emotional attractor. You can't arouse the positive emotional attractor and negative emotional attractor at the same time. It's physically impossible, but for change, you do need both. The positive emotional attractor state, or PEA, is necessary in order to formulate an engaging vision that will motivate sustained and desired change. PEA is characterised by varying degrees of positive emotions. 
Examples of positive emotions include joy, interest, amusement, and love. When people activate the positive emotional attractor, all of a sudden you get excited about the possibilities. The negative emotional attractor state is characterized by negative emotions, such as fear, anxiety, anger, despair. Within the negative emotional attractor, you're activating the stress response. You're compromising the person's ability to be open to, to new ideas and change cognitive, emotional, or perceptual openness. They close down. Negative emotions are stronger than positive emotions. While the negative emotional attractor is required to move a person from vision to action, a person must spend significantly more time in the positive emotional attractor in order to activate sustained and desired change. Richard Boyatza says, if you start a change process with someone presenting a problem, you are not going to have much impact. I'm a big fan of appreciative inquiry, which is a strength-based approach, which I teach a lot and use in my work. Appreciative inquiry is concerned with both vision and discussing strengths. And now I understand that there is actually neuroscience basis for why it's a useful approach to change. So what's appreciative inquiry? It's a strategy for intentional change that identifies the best of what is to pursue dreams and possibilities of what could be a cooperative search for strengths, passions and life-giving forces that are found within every system and that hold potential for inspired positive change. An appreciative inquiry process involves defining an affirmative topic, then carrying out four successive conversations, being discovery, appreciating the best of what is, dream, envisioning what could be, design, co-constructing what should be and deliver, sustaining what will be. So I teach this a lot in my classes on trauma-informed design. I think it's gold. Personally, I think we are too deficit-based in our practice and we focus on needs and pain points too much. And this can be problematic when you're working in NGO sectors that are trying to be strength-based. This lens activates negative emotional attractors and does not invite consideration of possibility or ignite mo motivation for change. I feel we need to be focused on visioning and strength so that we can create more of that. As you can see, neuroscience backs up the value of focusing on strengths and vision to support sustained change. So we do some of this already. Um, visioning or creation of a shared or individual future activates the positive emotional attractor. Getting people to talk about the purpose, the big picture, the vision will get them out of analytic thinking and into expansive and creative thinking. When people activate the positive emotional attractor, they get excited about the possibilities. To motivate change throughout a change process, keep coming back to the vision. Consider using generative research methods like illustrated in the pictures here, using craft and making to get people to explore their vision. We will talk a little bit more about generative research methods and creativity and neuroscience shortly. So what are the implications for design research? If you want to see change, do not begin a project focusing on just the problems. Incorporate visioning exercises into your engagement. Co-design and making are playful ways to envision. Focus on strength. Consider using a 
appreciative inquiry as a strength-based approach for your interviews as well as your workshops. Creating visions for the future stimulates creativity and openness for change. Make sure you keep returning to the vision. In this next section, we'll talk about reflective practice and learning. I believe that these are both really important um, components of our work. Learning is neuroplasticity. The brain's ability to change and adapt is a result of experience. Neuroplasticity plasticity is about creating new neural pathways. Learning builds on and changes existing neural networks. Learning requires practice through strengthening of new neural pathways. So building on the last section about positive emotional attractor and negative emotional attractors, we also know emotion relates to learning. So let's talk about Kolb's learning cycle here. This is a widely accepted framework for learning developed by David Kolb. He posits that the learning cycle basically involves four sections, namely concrete experience, reflective observation, abstract conceptualization, and active experimentation. Effective learning can be seen when the learner progresses through the cycle. The learner can also enter the cycle at any stage with logical sequence. Learning only occurs when a learner can execute on all four stages of the model. This accepted framework for learning points to the importance of reflective practice. Donald Schoen wrote a seminal book called The Reflective Practitioner. Schoen defines reflective practice as the practice by which professionals become aware of their implicit knowledge base and learn from their experience. Implicit, implicit knowledge is essentially learned skills or know-how. He talks about two types of reflective practice. One, reflection on action, which is reflected after a particular incident or situation where we analyse, review and evaluate. And reflection in action is where we reflect on the behaviour that happens. We are reflecting on our action in the moment. Another term he introduces is knowing in action to describe tacit knowledge or knowledge gained from experience that is difficult to express. Design practice, as we know, is, not, is, very, um, is very nuanced and it's not formulaic. The interplay between reflection in action and reflection on action increases our knowing in action. Our tacit knowledge and our capacity to act in the moment, to respond to our context and improve our capacity. So reflective practice, I think, is a really important way um, to help us um, improve our practice as designers. I hope you guys can't see that slack little thing that's in my screen. I don't know how to get rid of it. Um, you can't, Jax. You can't, thank you. <laughs> All right. Um, okay. So a valuable question to ask yourself often, what have I learned today? Think about in, um, including reflective practices in your, in your um, team um, meetings and, and so forth as well. It's really valuable. All right. So let's now talk about rest and space. The brain needs rest and space. It needs time to process and reflect on learning. The value of rest and daydreaming for learning and cognition cannot be underestimated. 
there are two networks in the brain and they offer different and distinct kinds of thinking. And these have to do with um, why rest is important. Both of these networks are important and we toggle between the two of them. The task positive network was discovered first where they put people in fMRI machines and they did imaging of their brains to um, watch what happened when they were focused on tasks. And what was interesting is that the default mode network got discovered when studying the task positive network and asking people um, to focus on tasks. And then in between the tasks, this other area of the brain was consistently um, lit up. So um, this is the, on the left is a scan, an fMRI scan showing the default mode network. So um, when the default mode network is operating, we give diffuse attention. Mm -hmm. It's what the brain does when we are at rest mm -hmm. and not doing, not focused on tasks. Mm -hmm. It appears to be the um, default mode of the brain. It brings creativity and an openness to new ideas. The background, the default mode network, it helps us to understand ourselves as well as understand others. It helps us to be wise. This is why it's important to create spaces to rest in between tasks. Creating spaces can support creative thinking in people. It's kind of why you get those inspirations when you're like relaxing in the shower. So learning is strengthened when it occurs in the presence of strong emotion. With strong emotions, our brains squirt neurotransmitters that go flash, flash, flash. Remember this. This is really important. Remember this. So something that we might consider is how might you stimulate emotion when sharing your research to encourage learning? So some implications for design research here. Create time for reflection about your practice alone and with your team. Turn it into a ritual. Create spaces in your research process for rest. Engineer space between tasks for people to be in their default mode network. Appeal to emotion when presenting your research to stimulate learning. So next we're going to talk about creative cognition. Here are six keys for creative cognition. Trust and safety, which we have discussed. Listening, humour and play. Trust, novelty and externalisation. So here you will see that we do a lot of this stuff already, but here's some neuroscience that explains how it works. Listening encourages creativity in others. When we feel we are being heard and understood, it increases the connective neural fibres in our brains, fibres that are crucial for bringing together different areas of the brain, leading to increased cognitive function and creativity. Humour and play. Humour and play relaxes the brain and stimulates learning. Laughter causes the release of oxytocin. Oxytocin has the effect of suppressing the amygdala and therefore limiting the fight or flight response, freeing up capacity for higher level thinking. Being playful puts the brain in an open state for learning. All baby animals and humans learn through play, which allows mistakes to be made and learn from in a, in a safe environment. Humour and play stimulates the parasympathetic nervous system. And when people are in the parasympathetic nervous system or in parasympathetic activation, they're actually at their cognitive best. They can handle more complex concepts. They're more creative. They're open to new ideas, to learning and to change. So how might you introduce humour and play into your work?
Externalization. So when we play or have constellations where you use people or things to represent different parts of a situation, it gets it out of your head. Externalization is actually helping the brain extend itself, expanding cognition, increasing people's ability to grasp complexity, to learn and to find solutions. So here are some examples of um, the use of sketching, mapping, role play and prototyping activities using objects and using the use of artifacts are used to support problem solving as well. So this is um, evident. There is evidence in neuroscience that show um, that this doing this work is really uh, there's evidence for it through neuroscience. So stuff that we're already doing um, is works and yeah sorry <laughs> so okay let's talk about novelty now so with novelty new experiences stimulate neuronal connections and learning novelty stimulates positive emotional attractors which we talked about leading to improved cognition creativity learning collaboration and problem solving so there are so many ways to use novelty in your practice and i'm sure that you use novelty already but let's have a look at some examples so ethno ethnography is a good example of novelty. Witnessing others in their lives can support creativity and problem solving. Novel activities such as getting participants to take photos according to prompts as part of diary study studies or undertaking novel activities out of the norm for them can improve creativity. The image shows some different examples of collage, some materials in a making kit that I sent out for a diary study, on the top right is a, um, a diary study kit that was sent out some years ago before everyone had mobile phones with postcards and different activities to do, which was quite novel for people. And, um, and then we have, you know, co-design workshops, making with, with various equipment. That's pretty novel thing to do, especially um, in groups. So we're using novelty already and generative design research utilises externalisation, play, novelty and visioning. So we're doing, we're doing this stuff already, which is great. So what are the implications here for design research? Ensure people feel safe. I'll just keep saying that one because it's so important, as I hope that you've seen. Ensure people feel heard. Consider utilising objects and making to extend cognition and increase creativity and problem-solving capacity. And when designing generative design research activities and workshops, consider using novelty, play, humour, externalisation to encourage creativity. So I want to leave you with some final thoughts about the value of cultivating your own self-awareness. Your presence and self-awareness is important for design research and for your life. A pathway to self-awareness is through your body. It is through an awareness of our bodies that we can become present in the moment. Notice states of dysregulation in ourselves and in others. Enhance our connection with others. Facilitate safety for others through co-regulation. Increase our presence in the moment so we can respond and pivot in the moment and not react. I will leave you with a quote from Richard Strozzi Heckler who writes about embodied leadership and mastery. When we work through the body, we engage with the fundamental life energy that animates and shapes who we are. When we connect with this core energy, we contact, we contact a vast reservoir of wisdom, 
compassion and intelligence that we've neglected. Cultivating self-awareness is a journey. It's a journey that can start with building better awareness of our bodies. Cultivating self-awareness is an important journey for all of us in life and a critical capacity for those of us who work with change. Thank you for your time today. I hope that um, you've enjoyed this talk about neuroscience and I've planted some seeds here today. If you found it interesting or anything particularly resonated for you, please do reach out. And just a little plug that I'm currently between gigs and if you need some help, please do get in touch with me. So thank you all. Thanks so much, Jax.